Hayden City. A dark place. Coming up here, you learn that pretty fast. Ever since I was a kid, I always knew this place was gritty. Dirty. Selfish. I really found out when I became a police officer all those years ago. My name's Archer Mendenhall. But everybody calls me Ace. I graduated from the Hayden Police Academy in 1968. I always wanted to be a cop, despite their poor reputation in Hayden. I just thought if that's what I did, the people in this town could get some help for once. Boy, was I wrong. When you're a kid growing up here, you understand this place is a culture of scheming, lying, and backstabbing. You see it every day and accept it as a part of life. I remember one year, my best friend Johnny made the traveling Little League team. He even went to the tryouts in a pair of Converse All-Stars and still made it. The only thing was, you needed a pair of cleats and all your own equipment to play. Johnny's mom couldn't buy him new cleats. So what did he do? He stole a pair from this kid who lived across the street from him. Johnny wasn't all bad though. He gave him back when the season was over. But that was all kid stuff. The real scheming happened with the adults in this town. My father owned a dry cleaning business a few blocks from our house, which was a complete joke because no one could afford to get their clothes dry cleaned in my neighborhood. But I didn't know that at the time. All I knew was that my dad was a busy guy and he put food on the table. Sometimes a lot, sometimes not much at all. Financial stability wasn't something we really experienced in my home. Every Christmas was a total coin toss. Some years, the presents would be flowing out from under the tree and covering the whole floor. My dad would say, it's been a real good year, so we better enjoy it. Other years, all I got was a front row seat to a screaming match between my mother and father. Even though I didn't really understand everything that was going on, I got the gist that maybe my dad wasn't the best, most honest guy in the world. My beliefs were confirmed one night, when I was out with Johnny. We used to walk around Bar Street, and pass by this Irish pub. All the university kids rode their bikes down there, because they would serve minors on the weekend. The students would leave their bikes around the corner in the alley. If any of them weren't locked up, me and Johnny would take them and bring them to this bike shop that would give us cash for them. One night, me and Johnny got lucky and scored ourselves two bikes. When we rode over to the bike shop, we passed by another bar, Hugo's, my dad's regular joint, as he walked out with a woman. She was wrapped up around his arm, hugging on him, kissing on him. When we saw each other, we both stopped dead in our tracks. Before I could say anything, he said, Archie, what are you doing here? He came up to me real close and whispered in my ear, Hey, don't tell your mom about this, alright? And then stuffed ten bucks in my shirt pocket. As he and the woman walked away, I heard her say, How do you know that kid? 
and he just said, Oh, he delivers papers on my street. I rode that stolen bike straight home and went up to my room. I punched the headboard of my bed until my knuckles were bloody. When my mother came in to see what the hell was going on, I just told her someone stole my bike. I never said what I saw that night. Not to protect my dad or because he gave me money, but because I knew it would break my mother's heart and tear our family apart. The burden of that lie ate away at me constantly, and I vowed to myself that I wouldn't be like my father, that I'd be an honest man. From then on, I kept my head down, did my work, and stayed out of trouble. I was a good student, and I had a little restaurant job washing dishes on the weekend. That didn't stop trouble from finding me, though. It was in the ninth grade. A few boys from my neighborhood started picking on me. They followed me home on their bikes and called me names. They made fun of my shoes and the fact that I did well in school. I didn't do anything back, so their actions escalated. One day, they took my backpack and ripped up my homework. After a while, they even started throwing rocks. That's when I devised a plan. I knew I couldn't take on the Three Stooges all at once, so I had to catch them when they were alone. I took one of my dad's ties out of his room and brought it to school one day. The Three Stooges didn't pay me much attention during school, only after, on the way home. So I watched closely throughout the day and chose the best moments to catch each one with their guard down. I got Larry in the bathroom taking a piss. I crept up behind him, wrapped the tie around his neck, and pulled until he couldn't breathe. I told him that if him and his friends kept messing around with me, one day he'd be minding his own business having a leak, and the last thing he'd see would be a urinal cake in a dirty bathroom floor before it was over. Right after I said that, I pulled the tie even tighter, and really made him wish he'd just stayed in the classroom. I caught Moe in gym class and did the same thing. And then I got Curly at lunch and choked him until he puked in the urinal. I knew they would be mad and want to get payback after school. So beforehand, I asked Johnny and his baseball friends to wait in an alley near my block after class. When the Stooges caught up to me walking home, I ran to the alley where Johnny and the others were waiting. They gave chase and followed me there. When they pulled in on their bikes, Johnny and the boys came out with their bats and started swinging. They chased the Stooges away, smashed up their bikes. They ripped the wheels off and threw the bikes in the dumpster. After that, the three knuckleheads left me alone and started picking on someone else. Every once in a while, I would catch one of them pissing in the bathroom, stand behind them, and wait for them to turn around. It always gave them a shock, but they never said anything and just tried to act like it didn't matter. After enough of that, they just started going pee in the stalls. I like to think I didn't mean what I said to them about killing them, but I really wasn't into lying, so part of me probably meant it. That kind of stuff was normal as a kid here. I can't say I had a really rough life, but the things I experienced growing up definitely shaped who I am today. They say life is a lot more simple as a child. And they're right. 
I got my first-hand experience in just how complicated the world can be when I joined Hayden PD. So I graduated from the academy in 68 and joined the force the same year. I was an eager young man, only 24 years old, eager to help, eager to try and make a difference. That's how I got the name Ace. My partner, Pat Washington, gave it to me because I always wanted to be the first one on a call. Being a cop was good in the beginning. Patrolling the streets, putting away bad guys. I liked my job. It was widely known that cops in Hayden were a little corrupt. And I certainly wasn't perfect. Johnny was now a bookie. And he gave me some kickbacks to make sure nobody interfered with his business. A few of the girls I grew up with, who are now ladies of the night, also sent a bit of money my way, just to look out for them and tip them off about raids and such. I didn't feel like what I was doing was bad. The way I saw it, if you didn't look out for your people, they would just be in the hands of someone else. I didn't trust that in a place like this. I realized you could label me as a crooked cop, and I suppose I was one, but I got my first taste of real heat about six months into my rookie year. One morning, Sergeant Darnell came into the break room and addressed me, Pat, and four other officers. All right, listen up, fellas. I got a hot tip on a shipment of guns coming in tomorrow night. We're going to move in on it and make this bust. Should I get the warrants in order, sir? No, this one's off the books. I turned to Pat and said, What does he mean by that? Don't worry about it. It's taken care of. The six of us are going to make this bust at the docks tomorrow night. And Pat, bring Ace along. It's about time he got his chops around here. Sure thing, Sarge. I wasn't sure what to make of this announcement. I was excited about being on a real raid, busting real criminals, and getting illegal guns off the street. But it all felt a bit sudden, almost like it wasn't real. I thought, this one's off the books. What did that mean exactly? I would find out soon enough. The next night arrived, and we all hopped in a van and went to the docks. We watched from behind a crate as a large truck backed up a shipping container into one of the warehouses. Sergeant Darnell told us to enter with guns drawn and tell them loud and clear that we were police. He went ahead first and then gave us the signal. We kicked open the back door and yelled, Police, hands up! The men in the warehouse froze. None of them ran or pulled their weapons, in utter shock of what was happening. Pat walked up to the shipping container and popped the door open. When we saw what was inside, everybody's jaw dropped. The container was lined with all kinds of Russian guns. AK-47s, Makarovs, RPDs, RPKs. The load was huge. Sergeant Darnell, unfazed by our findings, said, All right, pack this shit up, let's go. Three officers had to go back to the precinct to bring back two more vans. We filled them up with the guns and brought them back. The Russians in the warehouse were left there. No arrests, no charges, no nothing. 
It all felt very surreal. Making a bust that huge and keeping everything under wraps. I understood that this was a shady operation, but I didn't think the whole thing could go completely unnoticed. As soon as we got back to the precinct, Sergeant Darnell broke out a case of whiskey and congratulated us for a job well done. He said our efforts wouldn't go unrewarded, and I felt proud to think I had done something good. Something good for the force. Good for the city. Good for the people. I came into work on Monday expecting some kind of shift in energy at the precinct, hopeful that news of the bust would have circulated and created positive morale. When I got in, that was not the case. Everything was business as usual. I found my partner Pat and said, Pat, what's going on? I don't understand all of this. What's not to understand? We seized over 500 illegal firearms from Russia the other night, and everyone's acting like nothing happened. Jeez, Ace, what do you want? Fucking parade? No, but that was a huge bust. There hasn't been a press conference, an interview, not even a single news article. Look, that's just the way things get handled around here sometimes. Things are done more privately. It's not public knowledge. But why? I don't know how they decide what's private or not. But don't worry, it doesn't matter. When you help with private affairs, get that good word in with the captain. Get bumped up, make some more money. That doesn't make any sense to me. Doesn't matter what makes sense to you. This is the way things are. Just accept it. I couldn't believe his attitude about all of this. Everyone's attitude about all of this. Unfazed. Unchanged. Like everything was normal. Like this is what happened all the time. In my heart, I felt as if it shouldn't matter. Like I shouldn't need praise to do my job. At least something positive was done for the city. Hundreds of weapons taken out of criminal hands. Safety for the people, insured by our actions. Boy, was I wrong. The following summer experienced a wave of violence like no other. Organized crime groups and lower-level street gangs waged all-out war against their opposition, as the city was a constant battleground for territory and power. That summer, we responded to fatal shootings almost every day. It was an absolute bloodbath, with no end in sight. But these acts of violence were not completely random. Certain similarities appeared among many of the instances. Similarities I could not ignore. The first was that many of the victims in these violent crimes had problems or disputes with the Italian mob. The mafia was really beefing up on enforcement and sending the message to everyone that they were in charge. People who owed money, those experiencing extortion, and rival gang members all got put on notice. There weren't any games being played. Any stepping on toes or refusal to cooperate was met with gun smoke. The net worth of Don Imperioli, head of the Imperioli crime family, went up tenfold that summer. In a time where the city was completely on fire and its residents were in constant fear and desperate for help, he watched the millions roll in. Don was immune to legal or financial trouble. Every time an issue came close to affecting him, someone in his extensive criminal network would take the charge and keep him safe. Don Imperioli was untouchable. The second similarity, and the most concerning to me, was that most of the firearms used in these shootings 
or Russian by make. It didn't take long for me to connect the dots and realize what had happened. Someone in the Imperioli crime family tipped Sergeant Darnell off about the guns. The Russians were getting too powerful and the Italians couldn't allow them to obtain more firepower. When we seized those guns at the docks that night, we didn't take hundreds of illegal weapons off the streets. We just put them in the hands of different criminals. For a profit. Taking part in this, and knowing my actions hurt so many people, really took its toll on me. I started having trouble coping, and I began drinking a little after work, sometimes not even after. The thing that bothered me the most was the fact that no one's attitude was affected by anything that was happening. I patrolled the streets with Pat, responding to calls, talking to witnesses, going about business like nothing was wrong. But in reality, everything was wrong. I would stand there and ask a poor old shop owner, who robbed you, who did it? Whatever they said after didn't matter. Because the truth was, I did it. I was responsible. I'd go back to the cruiser and take a swig from my flask. I kept it out of sight from Pat, but I'm pretty sure he knew. Everyone had their own little coping mechanisms. Affairs off the books became more of a regular occurrence. We would bust up poker games, bookie shops, dope houses. We would report just enough to make it seem like we were doing our jobs. But really, 80% of everything we did was just for ourselves, or the captain. The bigger busts that were off the books went straight to the top. Those jobs only put in a good word for you. Everything else you could get away with off the books on your own time was fair game. It seems stupid not to do your own dirt, because after seeing the effects the big jobs had on the streets, everything else just seemed like chicken shit. Being compliant with the force changed you. It made you think different. I used to enter a situation asking how I could help. After a while, I started thinking, What's in it for me? I didn't like who I had become, but it was too late. I chose the life of a Hayden cop. Before long, the booze wasn't cutting it anymore. I was having trouble going to bed. I'd stay up all night thinking about all these things that bothered me. That's when Pat put me onto morphine. He said it would help me sleep, and that's exactly what I needed. Except the kind of rest it gave you wasn't exactly like sleep. I began taking it on restless nights, when I knew the Sandman wouldn't make much of an appearance. I would close my eyes and let my mind wander. It was like dreaming, but while you're awake. In my dreams, I was often chasing someone, chasing them through the street, through alleys, into buildings. I didn't know what they did, but it must have been bad because I was always in uniform when it was happening. Every time I got close enough to put my hands on him, I would reach out, grab the back of his collar, and be thrusted awake by the sound of my alarm clock. Like I said, it wasn't quite sleep, but it was better than nothing. Summer turned into fall, and then winter soon after. 
violence in the streets had settled down quite a bit, and the Italian mob was sitting pretty at the top. Business continued as usual for us, too. Everyone ran their usual rackets. We all followed Sergeant Darnell's orders when something needed to be done. It didn't even feel wrong anymore. I was numb to it. Completely numb to it all. A real turning point for me came when the investigators called in a woman named Diana Yates. A real high society type who liked to mingle with Hayden's upper class. She and her family were from England, and everyone called her the Duchess. Her father owned Yates Shipping Company, which was responsible for tons of cargo coming into Hayden. They sat her down, in an interrogation room, as I watched behind the two-way mirror. Good afternoon, Miss Yates. Do you know why you're here today? No. And I don't have time to play guessing games. So why didn't you just tell me why I'm here? Okay. Your father is the head of Yates Shipping Company. Is that correct? You already know the answer to that question. Just tell me why I'm here. Okay, okay. Well, a load of illegal goods was seized from one of your father's vessels yesterday. Do you have any idea how many vessels my father's company is responsible for? You can't possibly believe that I'd be responsible for all of them. You're right. I can't possibly be sure. But since you hold a position in your father's company, we do have the right to question you. Hmm. I have no answers to your pointless questions. You're better off talking to the wall. Okay, fair enough. But I should tell you that we also have the right to bar your father from doing any business in the U.S. Unless you're willing to cooperate. In what way? Well, perhaps you could tell us about any contraband coming in from another shipping company. This is ridiculous. I have a flight back to England tomorrow morning. <laughs> well, you'll be telling Daddy business is on hold tomorrow afternoon if you don't give us some good information. Ugh, fine. You people are insufferable. She picked up the pen and notepad in front of her and started writing something down. Her expression was that of irritation and disgust as she pushed the notepad back across the table toward the investigator. Afterward, the paper was given to Sergeant Darnell. It contained the information of a vessel coming from Shanghai Shipping Company. By the way Darnell looked at the paper, I could tell this one would be off the books. Me, Pat, Darnell, and five other officers waited at the docks the afternoon the ship from Shanghai was supposed to come in. We stopped the crew and demanded to search the vessel. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. The ship was full of construction supplies and machinery. Sergeant Darnell led the search, and by the way he moved around, it was clear he was looking for something specific. In the back of the hull were crates of cement mix. He pointed at them and ordered us to take them out. We brought the bags out to the van one by one and confiscated them under the pretense that they were not documented in the ship's inventory. I knew the whole operation was obviously fishy, but I wasn't sure what Darnell was getting at by taking all of the cement mix. Even Pat was confused by this strange gesture. We would find out what was really going on in the following months. It was coming up on the holiday season, and Christmas was right around the corner. The feeling in the city had changed, and everything seemed dead. 
Pat and I patrolled empty streets, absent with life and even crime. I had never seen the city so dormant, and I wondered what made it like this. Whatever it was, I knew it couldn't last. Peace never overstayed its welcome on the streets of Hayden. Sure enough, the overdoses started happening. The new year brought in a lot more than champagne bottles and resolutions. Bodies were being rushed to the hospital at an alarming rate, and stiff corpses began popping up everywhere. The people of Hayden were no longer at war with each other, but themselves, as a new and extremely potent brand of heroin called China White flooded the streets. In just a few short months, the focus of the people went from killing each other to killing themselves. No one could resist the allure of this deadly new dope, and once they had it, there was no going back. During the initial surge of overdoses was when I got the call. Johnny was in the hospital. He was hanging out with a bunch of friends, partying and having a good time, before he snorted a line of what he thought was coke. When he passed out and started foaming at the mouth, his friends brought him into the hospital. Luckily, they got him there fast enough to save his life. When I saw him in the hospital, he was a complete wreck. I made him promise me not to do anything stupid like that ever again. Then I made him tell me where his friends got the dope from. At first, he didn't want to. But then I told him that if he didn't, I would ask his friends myself. On duty. He was reluctant to give me a name. But ended up telling me it was a guy named Benny from the neighborhood. Apparently, he had the china. And everyone was going crazy for it. Not just junkies. So I left Johnny at the hospital and decided to give this Benny a visit when I got the chance. I went home and tried to sleep. When I closed my eyes, nothing happened. And I laid there restless as the clock ticked and talked. I had a million thoughts running through my head and I couldn't shut them off. That's when I turned and saw the little pill bottle on my bedside table. The morphine dreams weren't the best, but anything was better than this right now, I thought. I opened the bottle and popped a couple pills. In about 20 minutes, my mind began to drift. I imagined myself walking the city streets, passing by the hustlers, the dealers, the hookers, the pimps, the gangsters every kind of lawbreaker that seemed to make up this whole city. Then, just barely within eyeshot, a man caught my attention as he saw me and booked it into an alley. I gave chase and followed him, desperate to catch up and take him down. In the alley, I saw him climbing up a fire escape, so I jumped onto the ladder and went up behind him. At the top, he climbed through an open window and into an apartment. When I made it through the window, the door to the hallway was open and his footsteps echoed closely outside. In the hallway, his shadowy figure bolted to the left 
and down a stairwell. I ran quickly down the stairs and heard a metal door open before reaching the bottom. When I got there, I busted through the swinging door and saw him running through the dark alley. I had my eyes on him now, and I decided I wasn't going to let him get away this time. I sprinted toward him and got closer and closer. He was almost within arm's reach. I had gotten too close to let him escape now. I couldn't let it happen. I felt like I'd been chasing this guy my whole life. I ran with all my might and reached out with everything I had to grab him from behind and hold on. I got my fingers around the back collar of his jacket and held on tight. My mind began to surface as the reality I was in started to slip away. No, I thought to myself, this bastard wasn't going to get away again. I jerked him toward me with all my strength, and we both went crashing to the ground. Light flooded into the alley as the world around us began to fade away. Who are you? I said. Show me your face. I turned the bastard around to see who it was. I looked him in the eye, and staring right back at me, was me. The sound of the alarm clock and the light from the morning sun became my new reality. I got out of bed feeling more exhausted than I did going in. For some reason, all I could think about was all the heroin out there. All the lives being ripped apart by the deadly China. Johnny being in the hospital. And how a simple accident landed him there. I couldn't help but wonder how I might be connected to all of this. Surely Hayden PD had their fingers dipped in this pie somehow. Then I remembered the bags of cement mix we took off that boat. Suddenly it clicked. Those bags weren't holding cement mix at all. They had to be full of the dope from China. Why else would Darnell want to take them and keep it off the books? It didn't make any sense before. Now things were starting to add up, but I had to be sure. I needed to pay this Benny a visit and get some information from him. Off the books. What better way than to show up at his place with my badge out and start asking questions? Showing up with that badge on or off duty was like playing with a loaded deck. You could go anywhere and do almost anything without anyone stopping you. People were too afraid to get on the department's bad side. Having hated cops against you could make your life a living hell. I pulled up to Benny's apartment complex later that evening. In just my luck, he was standing outside. I sat in the car for a little while and watched people come and go. Passerbys would walk up to him and hand him their money. Then he would hand them little bags from his jacket pocket. I waited till no one was around to approach him. When he was finally alone, I grabbed my badge from the glove compartment. Just before I stepped out the door, I got a sudden urge to leave my badge in the car. I'm not really sure why, but in that moment, I didn't want to approach him as a cop, but as a man looking for answers. I wasn't doing this for the police. I wasn't doing this for the city. I was doing this for me. I opened the glove compartment and put my badge back inside. I took my pistol in the back of my pants and got out of the car. 
What's up, man? Looking to score? Hands up, asshole. Right where I can see him. Ah, oh, shit, man. Listen, you can take everything I have, but I swear it's all I got. You got dope? Yeah, it's in my pocket, man. Take it. I don't want the dope. I want to know where you got it from. I'd rather you just took it, man. I can't be telling people stuff like that. Why not? Because I don't want to get killed. That's why. Who's going to kill you? The Italians? The Russians? Nah, man. These people are even worse than them. They're cops, aren't they? Just take the dope, man. Look, I have money too. Who was the cop you got this from? I really can't tell you that. Tell me now or I'll shoot you in the foot. Well, you better just do it, because he's going to shoot me in the head. Okay. Whoa, 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 wait a second, man. Hey, if I tell you, you have to keep my name out of it. Sure. Who is it? Darnell, you know? The big guy? I thought so. Hey, wait a minute. I know you, man. I've seen you before. No, you haven't. Yeah, I have. At the precinct. Aren't you a cop? No. I left there with a greater sense of urgency than before. Earlier, my thoughts and feelings were just a hunch. But now, all of my stress and paranoia was confirmed. I wasn't sure what this urgent feeling was telling me to do. I wasn't sure what I even was going to do. But it was clear that something had to change. I came in from my shift the next day with a new priority. I wasn't going to do anything off the books. I was only going to fulfill my duties as a civil servant. To help the people. And be an arbiter of justice. I arrived at my desk to find a manila envelope with my name on it. Curious as to what it was holding, I opened it and looked inside. A thick stack of twenties peered back at me through the opening. I counted the money and found the sum to be that of $1,200. I looked around the precinct and saw my fellow officers to be overly cheery in mood. I spotted Pat across the room, and when we made eye contact, his ear-to-ear grin suggested he had gotten his little payday as well. Now it was time for me to decide if I was really serious about my thoughts going forward as a police officer. I decided I was, and it was time to tell Sergeant Darnell. I walked into his office, certain about my stance on being part of the force. Excuse me, Sergeant Darnell. Can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah, sure. What is it, Ice? I can't take this money. Yes, you can, and you will. Listen, I don't care where it came from. I just can't accept it. And why not? Because that's not the kind of cop I want to be. I understand there's a way you do things here, and that's fine. But from now on, I don't want to be a part of it. So here's the money. That's very admirable of you. But I don't think you realize the opportunity you're throwing away here. I don't care about the opportunity. I just want to do my job. You'll never get anywhere playing by the rules, Ace. The truth is, you can make more money being a dirty rookie than a clean captain on this force. That's fine. From now on, I'm clean. You're clean on your own time. As long as you're under me, we play dirty. 
Hand in your gun and badge if you're not going to take the money. I only want team players on my squad. All right then, here. <laughs> wow, Ace. You're really something else, you know that? I'm sorry, Sergeant Darnell. I just can't be a part of this. Call me Todd from now on. I'm not your sergeant anymore. I stepped out of the room feeling conflicted. Demoralized by Darnell's unwillingness to have clean cops on the force. Accompanied by a new sense of freedom. For no longer being under the thumb of such a corrupt organization. I had no idea what would become of me. Everything I wanted to be, my life's aspirations, crumbled away in an instant. On the walk out, I dared not look at my colleagues or my partner Pat, afraid they would sense my dejection and want to know more. I wasn't in any state to explain myself. I spent the following weeks in recluse, unsure of what I wanted to do with myself, but above all, unmotivated. I spent my time drinking, smoking, pondering. I came to the conclusion that I didn't need to be a cop to do good for people, but also that there might not be a whole lot of good going on in Hayden at all. I was forced to question what I really valued. A lot of things in this world appear to have meaning to many of us, but only one thing really matters at the end of the day. That is, the ultimate meaning. The only thing that pushes and pulls us in whichever direction we go. The truth. After a few weeks of wrestling with my thoughts and coming to terms with my new reality, motivation finally presented itself and I got out of the house. I went to a bar on the other side of town, the Golden Mule. This joint was owned by the Russian mob. I knew it was a big risk for me to show my face in a place like that. But without the badge protecting me anymore, I needed to make some new friends. I walked into the empty lounge and was greeted by a smoldering stare from the man behind the bar. He was a tall, heavy-set man. He was bald and had a thick mustache. I took a seat at one of the stools on the opposite end before he came over and leaned up against the other side. Ace Mendenhall. That's me. Do I know you? No. But we know you. And it's very bold of you to show your face around here after taking away our guns. I suppose it is. My boss would have you killed if you weren't a police officer. Then I guess I'm a dead man walking, cause I'm not a cop anymore. You're not? Then what are you doing here? I came to make things right between me and your boss. How are you going to do that? I can offer him my services in exchange for immunity and protection. And what services do you offer? Information services. I can get whatever kind of information he needs and send information if he wants to. So what? You are a private detective now? Yeah. Looks like I am. Interesting. 
boss may have job for you right away. 